Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word. During this Advent Christmas season, we're going through uh, the last two chapters of Revelation, so the last book of the Bible, the last portion of the book, and we're asking this question, what is our eternal home going to be like? Advent is a season of reflecting on the first Advent of Christ, His first coming, His birth, but also we're looking forward towards the second coming. And so we are imagining, based on Scripture and learning what that day and what that state is going to be like. Now, when it comes to Revelation, of course, for many people, it's a tricky book to interpret. And so we've set two rules for us. Number one, it's apocalyptic literature, so it's highly symbolic. There are visions and images we need to interpret. They mean something. They mean specific things, and so we need to get to what they mean. And then, of course, these two chapters conclude the whole Bible, so we need to pull together and resolve the various themes that we see throughout the Scriptures. So it's important for us to see this passage in the context of the whole Bible, and you will see how we will do that today. So, so far, from chapter 21, we've learned that God means to restore His creation, not destroy and make something new, but to restore it, to renew it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything that's good about this life, everything that's good about this world will remain and will actually be even better in the new world. And everything that's bad, particularly sin and the effects of sin, will be destroyed and will never make it into the next world. And then last week, we looked at this vision of a heavenly city, uh, as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day and as glorious as a temple. Now, if you remember, I said that humanity started in a garden, but we will end up in a city. Our future is urban. And in God's design, the original garden, if you read Genesis 2, the original garden was always meant to be expanded into all the world. We weren't meant to stay there. We were meant to multiply and be fruitful and rule over the world And part of the vision of God for humanity is that expansion and subduing the earth and working and rejoicing and celebrating and making beautiful art. That's part of His vision. And so I also pointed out that the imagery of the garden becomes absorbed into the imagery of the city. When the holy city is described in Revelation, like in our passage, it has all the elements we find in the original Genesis account of the garden. So in other words, the new city is a restored and expanded garden of Eden. So let me give you an analogy because we have to, we have to correlate, we have to connect these two ideas, the garden and the city. 
Some of us just want to go back to the garden, and I understand why, but that's, that's not all. There's going to be a city that's going to absorb that garden and absorb all the elements that we miss from the garden, but expand it into a city. So here's an analogy. Imagine a child who is sick, is in the hospital for numerous treatments, and she is missing parts of her childhood. And parents, understandably, see that as a loss and grieve over that and say, our child can't be like a typical child. We have to take her to the hospital, and months go by of her missing out on regular school activities and friendships. And so there's a sense of loss there, a sense of, of the child missing out on the childhood. However, the doctor's goal and the parent's goal is not simply to restore a healthy childhood. The goal is to restore the health of the child, but then allow the child to grow up and grow into, into an adult. So there's both the restoration of health and hopefully the, the resumption of, of normal childhood activities, but all with the goal of growth and development to grow into full adulthood, full healthy adulthood. When Christ returns, He will not only restore what we have lost in the garden, now, that's part of it, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about this today. But when He returns, He will also enable us to become all that He had intended us to be in eternity. There's the restoration of everything we've lost in the garden, and then there's the growing into adulthood. It's the, the development of humanity the way God had envisioned it. So with these thoughts in mind, I'd like us to explore the garden imagery in our passage, and I'd like to cast the human history as a story of three gardens, three gardens. One, there's the cursed garden, and we'll look at Genesis 2 and 3. Two, there's the promised garden, that's in our text, it gives us this, this vision of what is to come. And three, there's the Lord's garden, and we must walk through the Lord's garden to get to the promised garden. So let's start with the basic obvious observations here. If you read the Bible, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you can't read this passage, Revelation 22, without thinking about the Garden of Eden. All the elements are here. Now if you look at Genesis 2, and feel free to open it if you'd like, you will see the same elements. God and people are there, their relationship is perfect. There's harmony between God and humanity. People reign. They rule over the garden as God's representatives, and rule is promised in our passage too. They're both priests and kings. They mediate God's presence. They mediate God's rule to creation. There is a tree. There is a river. All those things are there. So Revelation 22 makes us think of the Garden of Eden. It, it pushes us to consider what we've lost. And we have lost it because after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, the first human couple, tempted by the serpent, rejected God's Word. They've questioned His love. They ate of the one tree in the garden that they were not allowed to eat from. So what happened there? Well, D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says they, they de-godded God. So they dethroned God. Effectively, they said, we will rule no longer as your vice-regents, 
representing your authority to the world, we will rule as sovereign rulers. In other words, Adam and Eve took over the throne of creation. They've rejected God, they've de-godded God, and they became gods themselves, at least in their own hearts. And so that decision, that fall of humanity, separated them and all their descendants from God and introduced sin and death and destruction, all those things, into God's good creation. And all of God's creation, including humanity, are now under a curse, under a curse. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are, are excluded, they're exiled from the garden. In fact, God put, puts the cherubim, He puts the, the angels to guard the garden, guard the tree. The tree is not allowed for humanity anymore. And ever since then, we have all lived in exile, east of Eden, under a curse. When you think about the main images, both in Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, and it's not accidental that those are the bookmarks of the Bible, or the bookends of the Bible, it's not accidental that it begins and ends with the same imagery. When you think about these images, they all have to do with life. Now think about it, the tree of life, the river of life, the light itself, everything has to do with, with flourishing, with life, with with God-given existence. And it is God-given. It comes from God. God breathed life into Adam. God made Eve. God planted the garden with the tree of life for humanity. And so separation from God, which is what happened in Genesis 3, separation from God is separation from life. Now, in our passage, the river, river of life with the waters of life, flows from the throne of God. This is, this is where apocalyptic imagery is so clear. Where does life come from? It comes from God. It comes from His presence. It comes from His rule. The river flows through the city, in the middle of the city, nourishing the tree of life, the tree that produces fruit and, and leaves that are the healing to the nations. But all of that is sourced in God. It's sourced in the throne, the throne that is now in the city. It's returned to the garden, and from it flows life. The Lord Himself is the light. The Lord Himself is, there's no more night. The Lord Himself is the light. He directly now gives life to everyone. Notice that His throne is right in this, this temple garden city thing. The throne is right there. It's returned. And life comes from God. A life apart from Him is a cursed life. An existence that is detached from the very source of life. Now, I, as many of you know, I did not grow up a Christian. I came to Christ in my teen years. Um, and what I've realized about the Christian faith is that to me, this is the only worldview, the only religion, the only understanding of reality that helps me understand my own feeling of homesickness, my own sense of exile, my own dissatisfaction with this world. I find the biblical explanation 
exceptionally compelling. Knowing that I live under a curse, as Scripture tells me. Knowing that I try to recreate what I have lost, and, and I try to do all of that without God, rings true to my experience. I wonder if it rings true to your life as well. The Bible helps us understand not just what our hopes are, but why those hopes are there, you see. We all want a better world. Nobody's really happy with this world. Nobody's really totally happy with their life. Why? Why is that? Because we come from a garden. We come from a place that is a certain way. We were made for that. We were made to live a certain way, but we've lost it, and our life now is under a curse. And so it never is going to feel right. It's never going to feel perfect. Our hearts are always going to long to restore what we've lost. And many people, not just Christians, talk about that feeling, feeling of, of, feeling of being excluded, even though you're here, but you feel excluded from this life, feeling like you've just been thrown here by someone. Somehow you're wrestling with these things and you don't understand why you feel you're missing home, but you don't know where home is. But you know this isn't. And so you work through that in your heart. And instinctively, we long for Eden. We long for the garden. Whether we believe it or not, whether we put it in biblical categories or not, I think it's an undeniable human experience. I was listening to an interview with John Lennox, who is a, is a mathematician at Oxford and a Christian, and he was sharing his story that when he was first an undergraduate at Oxford, and he was already a Christian, and he was invited to this, this dinner with all the dons of Oxford, and they eat, and they drink, and they talk important things, and there's candles, and it's very fancy. And he was sitting by a Nobel Prize winner, scientist, and he said, well, as I usually do, I try to turn the conversation to spiritual things, and I asked him, uh, has anything in your research, in your field of study, made you think of the Creator? And the conversation got really, really quiet very quickly. And then after, after the dinner, uh, John Lennox was invited and really summoned uh, to go to the back room where a few of the dons were sitting. And, and the professor that, that he asked that question to said, I'm just going to tell you right now, young man, you better give up this naive notion of God or this career isn't going to go anywhere. And he said he summoned up courage from somewhere. He says, I think I know where it came from, but I had this courage. And he said, but what can you offer to me that's better than what I believe? And after they gave him some explanation of, of a mindless consciousness that somehow created mindful people, he said, I think I'm going to stick with my explanation of reality. To me, one of the greatest arguments for the truth of Christianity is that it fits better with the human experience. It fits better with my own heart. I have felt these things. I have, before I became a believer, I have felt alienated. I have felt exiled. I have felt homesick. Where does it come from? Not until I read the Bible that I realized that my home isn't here and I long for the garden. This is where I am meant to be. In many ways, we are a bunch of misplaced garden gnomes, aren't we? 
I've checked this line with my family and some of them said, you shouldn't call people garden gnomes. <laughs> but I think it fits. We're just trying to get back to the garden. And wherever we are, we're trying to make the garden. We're trying to make the world that looks like the garden, and we can't do that. And the reason is because we're trying to do it without God. And if you try to do it without God, you don't have life. You can't live life without God. The problem is that we want life. We know what it is, instinctually at least. We know what we're missing, and yet we refuse to include God into that picture. We want the garden, but we don't want the gardener. And so we long for that, and we try to create that. And, and Scripture talks a lot about that. In between the two visions of the garden, there's a story of humanity trying to figure out how to re return to it without God. And so we have passages like Jeremiah 2, verse 13, where God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a diagnosis of our condition. We know we need water. We know we can't live without water, but we refuse to go to the fountain. And so we go digging and trying to make these containers of water that are broken and can't hold water. Without the source of the river of life, that flows from the throne of God, all we have are broken cisterns. We have placed ourselves on the throne, but there is no river of life flowing from it. Try as we may to look intently at every human face, we cannot find the face of God. Does that describe your life? It sure described mine before I came to Christ looking for something, not really sure what, what I'm looking for, and yet not being able to find it. Are you living a lifeless life without God? One of the best illustrations of this kind of existence that I came up with this week, the best of the week's choice, okay, is the grave of Sandra West. In May of 1977, she was buried in a San Antonio cemetery. Let me just read part of the article for you. The crane operators were careful not to mow over the existing graves as they maneuvered the 17-foot-long gray wooden box toward the 19-foot hole in the middle of the Alamo Masonic Cemetery. Inside the box lay the perfectly manicured corpse of the 38-year-old socialite and heiress Sandra West. Mrs. West was positioned as if reclining in the driver's seat of her beloved 1964 powder blue Ferrari 300 America. Some of you remember that car. In accordance with her will, she was dressed in her favorite white lace Italian nightgown with the seat slanted comfortably. The radio was tuned to her favorite station. It's an amazing image. It's an amazing image. There are all the signs of a good life here, aren't there? There's the beautiful car. There's the beautiful attire. There's the music that the person liked. There's the comfort of reclining in the driver's seat. And yet, actually, it's just a lifeless body in a box. How many people are pretending 
to live great lives waiting, just waiting for the whole charade to be exposed. Broken cisterns without the water of life flowing from the throne of God. The Bible tells us there is no life without God. Your throne may be the driver's seat of a 64-powder blue Ferrari, maybe. Or maybe it's an office chair or recliner, whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. There's no river flowing from your throne. That's what we've lost. This is a cursed garden, and this is everybody's experience. But there's the hope There's the feeling that that this is not all, that we're hoping for something to change. We're hoping for something else to come. Malcolm Muggeridge, the famous 20th century British journalist, lived most of his life chasing life without God until he finally met Jesus in the ministry of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. This is how he describes his experience that resonates with me. I wonder if it resonates with you. So it says, before and after he's a Christian, there's a, there's a shift here. He says, A scene that has often come into my mind, both sleeping and waking. I am standing in the wings of a theater, waiting for my cue to go on stage. As I stand there, I can hear the play proceeding, and suddenly it dawns on me that the lines I have learned are not in this play at all, but belong to a quite different one. Panic seizes me. I wonder frenziedly what I should do. Then I get my cue, stumbling, falling over the unfamiliar scenery. I make my way onto the stage. And there, look for guidance to the prompter whose head I can just see rising out of the floorboards. Alas, he only signals helplessly to me, and I realize that, of course, his script is different from mine. I begin to speak my lines, but they are incomprehensible to the other actors and abhorrent to the audience who begin to hiss and shout, get off the stage, let the play go on, you're interrupting. I'm paralyzed and can think of nothing to do but to go on standing there and speaking my lines that don't fit, the only lines I know. He goes on to say, there are so many plays to have a part in. So many and so varied plays, but never a one with my lines in it. Yet, I remain ever more convinced that at last I shall find the play my lines belong to and speak them. Like choristers waiting to sing, hearing unfamiliar music rumbling from the organ, poised, ready, and then the notes they are waiting for, the tune they know, uplifted, their faces shining and glorious, they pour out their song, filling the air with confident, full-throated notes. What Muggeridge is describing is the the feeling of, of disconnect with this world. I have a script, but my script doesn't belong to this play. And yet, I know there's another play that my script does go with. Now we can keep trying to make it work and try to say our lines louder and louder and hope that somehow it will fit this play, Ferraris and all. But ultimately, there is another garden where true life can be experienced. There is a play that our lines 
have been written for. And we get a glimpse of it in our text in Revelation 22. Let me briefly describe it. I'll just go through it verse by verse briefly. Look at the description of this promised garden that God gives us. God gives us this image to encourage us to say, this is where your lines will fit. This is where you will belong. Verse 1, instead of an angel guarding the tree of life and preventing our return to the garden, we find an angel inviting us into it. He invites John, the prophet, the seer, to look and see what the garden is like. So he can tell us there's an invitation to enter. Verses 1 and 2 talk about the river of life flowing from the throne of God through the middle of the city. And the tree of life is bearing fruit every month. There's a new fruit. It's like a fruit of the month club. It just keeps going and going. And the leaves of this tree have healing qualities, and they bring healing to the nations. Not just to one nation, but the diversity of God's world is going to be incorporated into this city garden temple thing. In verse 3, the curse is reversed. The throne of God is returned to the garden. God and people are reconciled. There will be nothing that is accursed in that garden. And people are once again face to face with God. We will see His face. We will be face to face with Him. No barriers in relationship anymore. No sin to stand between us. No confusion. No idolatry. Face to face with God. And His name is on our foreheads. What does that mean? God is claiming His people. And we will be claimed by Him never to wander away from Him, never to sin again. We will belong to Him, be eternally secure in that relationship. Verse 5. There's no more darkness or sin or evil. God himself is the light. And we will reign there. We will rule over his creation. You see how God is expanding Eden. What started in the garden. Yes, we were supposed to, Adam, name the animals. He started cultivating the ground. But now we are promised to reign forever and ever. What a vision. What a vision. This is the play our lines are written for. This is where we fit. This is where we finally will say, I don't feel alienated anymore. I don't feel homesick anymore. I am home. This is what we've been missing. This is the world we are made for. But how do we get there? How do we get from the cursed garden to the promised garden? Who is this promise for? It's not for everyone. Who is it for? To claim this promise, we must consider one more garden. Jesus, in the dark of the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed an agonizing prayer. He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was Jesus wrestling with in that garden? Jesus Christ came to end humanity's exile. He came to reverse the curse. But to do that, he had to go into exile himself. He had to become cursed in our place. And in the garden that night, he was preparing for the cross. 
he was preparing to take upon himself the curse of humanity, to go into the farthest exile. We know that Jesus died on the cross. We know from history, we know from Scripture that this was the, the most despised, what, what the most despised rebels in the Roman world should, should expect is that most unusual and, and cruel and scandalous and humiliating and painful punishment that the Romans can come up with. The Bible doesn't hide from, from us the horrific reality of the crucifixion of Christ. However, in several other places in Scripture, the crucifixion is described as a death on the tree. Death on the tree. For example, 1 Peter 2, verse 24 reads, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Why liken the cross to a tree? Let me give you at least two reasons. Number one, it makes us think about Adam and Eve's fall by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The imagery of the cross as a tree takes us back to the garden. It takes us to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And it reminds us of what happened and what necessitated this, this new experience of the tree through Christ. Where Adam disobeyed God by the tree, Jesus, the last Adam, the final Adam, obeyed God on the tree. You see, Jesus has reversed the fall of humanity on the cross, on the tree. He has opened the gates to the garden again. And the second reason why I think the biblical authors are, are likening the tree uh, to the cross is because according to the law of Moses, anyone who was hanged on a tree was considered cursed. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Substitution is a key idea in Christianity. It's a key idea to understand how God is reconciling humanity back to himself. Jesus became a curse for us. He was treated as a rebel, as an imposter king, even though the throne belongs to him by right. He became sin who knew no sin. He took the penalty for us. And it is no coincidence that he was buried in a garden tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, declaring that a new garden is promised to all who believe in him. There is a way out of exile, and Jesus, crucified and risen Jesus, is that way. If you give up your throne to him, if you look to him in faith, if you meet him in the resurrection garden and hear him call you by name as he did with Mary who mistook him for a gardener, if you hear him say your name, then and only then, the promise of the restored garden is for you. The healing that is promised from the tree of life in the new city begins now. It begins with the look of faith 
at the tree on which Jesus became a curse for you. There's a great passage in John 7, and I'll finish with that. Jesus is discussing these matters, these these great ideas, these great truths of why he came. And then he stands up, and it was a great feast there, and water was flowing, and fire was burning. And Jesus gets up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then there's a commentary by John, the same author that that wrote Revelation 22, the same one that saw the vision of the great garden. He says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was talking about that something to come after the cross, after the resurrection, after he was glorified, he was going to send the Spirit. He has been glorified. The Spirit has been sent. And the call to you and me is to, to embrace him by faith and to experience the Spirit's work right in us with the rivers of flowing, flowing water of life coming from our own hearts. If you thirst, come and drink. Drink of the Spirit and prepare for the garden that is promised to you. And out of your hearts, even now, will flow rivers of living water. You will know life now, life abundantly now, and you will be in his life forever when he returns.